It's nice to be back here. I've just um, uh, come from my own self-retreat. I had uh, the opportunity to practice for a couple of weeks up at Karma Choling, which has some uh, rustic retreat cabins. And um, at the end of my retreat, you know, I just felt so refreshed, rejuvenated, and inspired. And, you know, it just caused me to pause and reflect. I thought, you know, I was thinking of you all and what I might want to share you know, from my time, you know, what, and just to really look and see um, what was, hap- you know, what, what, what had helped to bring about that sense of being so deeply rejuvenated and inspired, and just that, um, the freshness. It, w- it was just so tangible. And, you know, certainly the most obvious thing, and, it, you know, to me, you know, at the end of the retreat and, and, and on the reflections I did, you know, it's all totally obvious. It's not like there was some great big bolt of lightning that um, something was spectacular. But, you know, it's what I talk about so often. But, the, you know, the seeing of it and the feeling, the feeling of it deeply is so freeing. You know, and the first thought was, you know, it's just about non-clinging, you know, and feeling when the mind isn't grasping, just just the ease that is there and the sense of grace that comes with that. And then, you know, as I was reflecting on just the simplicity of this teaching of non-clinging and realizing that, you know, that's not really what our culture teaches us. And out of that just came this whole sense of gratitude for, you know, the Buddha and just the work that he did in his own life. You know, that he just, he had the tenacity to look so deeply into his own heart-mind to realize the end of suffering And then, you know, to teach that to others, to teach that possibility, that capacity that is within each of us. And then, you know, just to see in my own life that that I've had this opportunity to hear these teachings and then to put them into practice. You know, that there I was, you know, the, the... the great good fortune, the good fortune that you have in being here, you know, that this is just such good circumstances to really look at both the truth of suffering and the cessation of suffering. And it's, you know, rare in this world to really have these conditions and I, you know, I just was just these waves of gratitude. And, you know, just this sense of just wanting to touch my forehead to the ground with such great appreciation. And the other aspect that, you know, as I reflected was that there was just such a strong feeling of refuge. 
And, you know, knowing that in my life, there's been times when there's been no sense of refuge, where the mind is just thrown about, you know, by events, by experiences, by just the savageness of which it could turn on itself. You know, just how unkind I could be to myself. And then just the realizing that through this practice, through this teachings, this sense of refuge becomes so much more tangible, so much more apparent, so alive in a sense. And so it, through that, it inspired me to want to speak tonight about the refuges, you know, what we have just been chanting because it's just so important. You know, the, the refuges themselves are said to be a doorway to the path of liberation. And, oh, we know what it's like to have no refuge. And sometimes we forget how, where it is we can find refuge. And so, you know, it's so important to bring the refuges to mind with understanding, you know, because words that we chant can be so thin. But when we really deeply understand them, when we're in a difficult time, we know where to turn. You know, and that's what the Buddha talked about, the refuges as being that which is reliable that which is precious, what is truly worthy of placing our hearts upon. And I know in my own life, I've found the unworthy places, you know, that which is not reliable. And, you know, taking refuge might not be something that we ordinarily think of in our lives. You know, it's not kind of been a cultural teaching. And yet, in, a, in our lives, whether we realized it or not, many times we, took ref, we have taken refuge in, you know, experiences, conditions. Uh, we take, you know, can take refuge in, the, in our relationships, our partners, take refuge in our job, take refuge in the things that we have in life, where, you know, just for, we think that our happiness will come from that. And I've seen it in my own life in the most mundane things. I had an experience once where there was this dress I wanted. And to the degree I wanted it, you would think that it was going to profoundly change my life. And I got that dress. But did my level of happiness really change? Was it a refuge? No, of course not. You know, and it, it, it was a good, I mean, just a good lesson in seeing how, how the mind does that and how there is no refuge in that. And, you know, we take refuge in our relationships, our families, and yes, they are of immense support. They, you know, they can really be something that helps us along the way. But, you know, I was today just thinking of the, the line from, I, th- I believe it's Graham Nash, where he said, remember, in the end, it's you you have to live with. You know, and in the end, our deathbed, what is going to help us there? 
You know, we have to let go of everything. You know, just so much. And it's really going to be the Dharma, understanding, wisdom, that will support us in those moments. Because nothing else will make that transition. But in our lives, as we live, this is our practice. Learning, learning for ourselves, looking deeply to see where this refuge is. You know, the Buddha, he saw, he saw the truth of impermanence. He saw things are always changing. Things are unreliable. But that inner inkling that knows there still is refuge. This is our journey. This is the work that we do here. And we all have this inner inkling. You know, the same thing that the Buddha had. We've all undertaken this journey. You know, taken the steps that he took when he left his home. He left his family. He left that sense of security, but seeing that it wasn't bringing security. We do that same, take these same steps when we come on retreat. We take these same steps in our daily life when we just don't buy into the promise of happiness coming through external fulfillment. But instead, we look within. We look within this very mind-body experience as it is here and now. I'd like to just say, because I know that some people come to practice out of a sense of (laughs) liberation, I don't know about. That seems really lofty. That seems high. I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, the Buddha could do it, but I'm not sure. But what we're looking for is just a sense of peace, some calmness, you know, sometimes a split second will do, you know, just that, that momentary refuge. And so, you know, we come to practice just to find a little bit of tranquility. But really, on one level, that's the voice of wisdom coming in. You know, and, and what we find as we look to those moments of peace that if we're really going to find true happiness, it is through liberation. It is through waking up. You know, waking up to the way things are. And that, you know, we begin to see that, yeah, we could just sit, you know, every morning for 45 minutes and maybe there's a glimmer of calm in there. But that, that's really conditioned. 
If we really want deep happiness, that it's going to be based upon wisdom, understanding, being able to live in accordance with the way things are. And that we find, as we practice, when we really start to look at what's happening in these moments where there is calm, peace, that we find that there is moments of non-grasping, non-clinging. We find moments where the mind is not wrestling, not at odds with the way things are. And, you know, so in some way, just this longing for a little bit of peace, a little bit of happiness, it's our homing instinct. And when we really listen to it, unfolds as the path liberation. So even the smallest aspiration, when nurtured, when paid attention to, can lead us to the highest realization. So when the Buddha spoke about what we could take refuge in. He laid it out very clearly. And it really speaks to different aspects that we can turn to. He spoke of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So I'd like to just speak a little bit about each of these So taking refuge in the Buddha. On one level, on the external, and for each of these refuges, there's really an external and an internal. And, and, and I'll, I'll speak a bit to each of that. But in the external, there was, you know, over 2,500 years ago, this man who lived. And I think for me, it's been so helpful to remember He was a man, a human being, you know, a human being just like we are. And as a human being, he did this inquiry, he did this investigation, this work that we're doing here, and realized the end of suffering. And just that one being having done it means it's also possible for us as a human being that that potential is there for each and every one of us. And to me, you know, at times to remember that has been deeply inspiring. And that could be in moments where there's a lot of struggle. That even in these moments where there is struggle, that potential is still there. And that through that, there's a sense of not having to cave into 
the struggle. Not having to collapse with that. Because these are the same struggles the Buddha faced. This potential within it. You know, it's the potential to be awake, aware. And, you know, in our lives we have may, may have moments where the wakefulness is strong. Moments where we have glimmers of this mind that is luminous, wakeful. Sometimes we might take refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embodies. Loving-kindness, compassion, wisdom, equanimity. Moments in our lives where we touch into these states. Through our practice, we're awakening these qualities within. So taking refuge in the Buddha can be you know remembering the historical buddha it can be the remembering of the potential within each of us it can be a taking refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embodies or manifests as Taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the truth, the lawfulness, the way of things, the teachings. These are all different ways the Dharma is expressed. When I was just on my recent retreat, I had an experience right before I went into retreat. I think it was the last conversation I had where somebody said something to me that hit a nerve. And so I went into retreat. And as I was sitting there, periodically the memory of this event would arise. And with that would come different thoughts about it. And, you know, just, I just kept being aware of it as it was, as it was occurring. 
And then the, with that awareness, there was noticing sometimes the thought thinking mind would take one position, sometimes it would take another position. You know, and it was just the seeing of this thinking mind as being so fickle. I mean, there was no refuge in the thinking mind itself. But there was a real refuge in the awareness of this. And this was without needing to do anything about it other than to be aware of it. And just in that awareness, there was the seeing that each time it came, it passed. If there was no you know, feeding, festering engagement with, it just did its own thing. And it was just the thinking mind. And there was just you know, a great coolness to this. It, it, there, there was the scene, really the scene of how awareness... And the understanding, you know, this is what really comes through in the Dharma, the teachings, the understanding. By being aware, this understanding comes. And, you know, we we talk about impermanence, but it's not that we have to do anything to make things impermanent. They are impermanent. And then in the scene of that, there was just a great freedom. You know, and it was like not having to take a stand, not having to believe this is the way it is, this is the way it is. You know, just not having to go there in the mind, even though thoughts of that could arise. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, we just see, you know, through our own experience, and, you know, the Dharma just brings it right into this very mind and body and the unfolding that is taking place here. And just that that's happening lawfully. And when we see that, we can rest in that. You know, it's like we so often think we have to do this. You know, it's like we have to do the Dharma. Almost like we have to create it. We're trying to fabricate something. No, we just have to recognize the way things are. And, you know, so that that isn't just when things are good that we recognize, oh, the Dharma unfolding. You know, when it's unpleasant, when it's hard, it's challenging. Ah, take refuge in awareness right there. This is what's happening. You know, which there's, it's, it's so different than being caught in that experience, being identified with, but just really looking to see. You know, those thoughts that were arising in my mind, if they were identified with, they were painful, they were confusing, they were disturbing. But when there was just this awareness, thinking is occurring. It was, there was so much more ease, acceptance. You know, and when, it, it's so common, I think, well, at least in my experience, what's happening is a mistake and I just need to get it right. But no, let this moment, the Dharma in this moment, how, what, what's happening now? Just this awareness. 
And out of the awareness, the understanding. And just using, seeing, hearing, touching, feeling, thinking. You know, these things that are naturally occurring. This is where the Dharma can be understood. I'd like to read a poem that I just came across by Ajahn Sumedho. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. The refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. Dharma also gets described as the combination of wisdom and skillful means. The wisdom is the clear seeing, and the skillful means is that which nurtures, nourishes, calls forth this clear seeing. very fortunate that on one level we don't have to read massive volumes of books to undertake this journey. That, you know, a lot of intellectual knowledge is not going to be what's going to do it for us. And yet, certainly a little bit of information is helpful. It shows us, guides us in where to look, how to look. Uh, but the looking is here and now wherever we are whatever we're doing we're never separate from this dharma it only needs to be recognized understood. And it's really life speaking to us. The teachings of this moment. Taking refuge in the Dharma, we can take refuge in our practice. This is so important when we face the challenges of being a human being. You know, just being a human being, we have a body. 
this body is subject to sickness, old age, death. If we have no understanding, no sense of refuge, it's going to bring up immense fear, terror, anxiety. But if we take refuge in our practice, it helps us to one stay present. And yes, certainly, you know, we're not fully enlightened, so there will be times when fear will be strong, anxiety. But if we know to stay present, if we know to keep looking, if we know how to protect the mind, which at times will be through skillful means, you know, where sometimes if something's completely overwhelming, we need to find you know, a way to protect the mind so it just isn't lost in that overwhelm. You know, it could be uh, times where you know, the, the fear is so strong that we might find doing metta practice just helps the mind to calm down, to open, to be more, to have a friendlier relationship with what's arising. So, you know, w- w- this can include skillful means. But you know, I know, um, actually, a few years ago, I got a diagnosis from a doctor, which was, you know, not very, um, you know, well, brought about the truth of impermanence. And, you know, it was unknown what it actually meant at that time. Unfortunately, it hasn't turned out to be, um, you know, the end of life. But it, it, it brought up the possibility of that. And, you know, in those moments, they're very powerful. It's probably, you know, all of us here have had those moments. And, oh, when we can turn to our practice, which, you know, isn't going to mean that we sit down and we just be with the breath, which maybe that might be the skillful means in the moment. But it is, it is that capacity to be aware through all of these changes. And, you know, if we really trust in that, if we give our hearts over to that, then we aren't caught in hope and fear. No. It, it, I found that through what, what it brought up in me, it, the way my practice brought refuge wasn't to think that, you know, if I really practice, then this will heal me. You know, and sometimes, actually, in the New Age culture we live in, that we can easily fall into. The thought that, you know, if we get everything right, if we fully awakened, that we would no longer be subject. This body has karma, you know, and there's body karma. And the Buddha, you know, he aged. There's suttas where it's talked about his sagging skin. You know, he spoke about it himself. You know, that, that, that it happens. It's the karma of a body. But the relationship with that, it shifts, it changes. And that's where the refuge comes in. We're not fighting the way things are. There was a Tibetan teacher, I think it was Kala Rinpoche, I could be wrong though, 
when he died, was about to die, and you know, his people around him were distressed about this. He just looked at them and he said, Don't worry, nothing changes. Certainly the form changes, but that's all. That's what it is. So, taking refuge in the Dhamma, taking refuge in our practice. And we know it in these moments where we face the deep vulnerability of being a human being. When we really find refuge there. And the third refuge being that of the Sangha. One definition of Sangha can be noble friendship, spiritual friendship. In the Buddhist teachings, there's, there's what's called the Arya Sangha, or the noble, the awakened Sangha. And this is all those beings who have walked this path before us and helped to illuminate the way. I know for me this has been very inspiring at times, and it has been in some of those difficult times. You know, one time I was sitting in Burma and practicing and really going through a very challenging time. And then at one point, I just looked up on the wall of this monastery, and there was a painting of the Buddha walking along on alms round, and there was, you know, this line of people behind him doing the same. And it was just this memory that all of these beings, and if you read stories from the, the disciples of the Buddha, some of their circumstances in life were horrific. You know, that... Uh, you know, women in that age faced really difficult lives. And, you know, the, they uh, came out of circumstances of immense grief and pain and were able to awaken. You know, and that just was like, okay, I can face this. I can do this. You know, others have done this. I can do this. There's also the level of Sangha, which is the ordained Sangha. And these are all of the monks and the nuns whom have you know, really taken the teachings, the practice to heart. Keep it alive in the world. And then there's the level of Sangha, which is a group of like-minded people coming together to hear the teachings and to do the practice, such as we're doing here. One of the nuns that I met in Burma, she described Sangha as the living stream through which the Dharma comes to us. And one of the important aspects for me in that is really just the sense of how this is a living tradition it's been passed on from heart to heart, mind to mind. And that within that, there is a lineage, a lineage of honoring the nobility, the potential of 
being a human being. And that within that, what I've come to see is that we all have our own place. Out of my time practicing in Burma, at one point when I had ordained as a nun. And that was a time when, you know, I, I, it was a temporary ordination. I always knew it would be temporary, which is something common in the Theravada tradition in Burma. But um, I really had a sense of stepping into the lineage at that time. And two people that were very helpful to me when I was a nun was the abbess of the nunnery that I went to stay at in Sagine Hills and her great aunt. So the abbess, I'm not sure how old she would have been. She was probably maybe around 50 and her aunt was in her, my memory's not so good, 70s or 80s. The aunt was just this completely delightful being. She would, she, she was bedridden She'd been a nun for almost all of her life. You know, she was, it was early in her life that she had ordained. And um, she had this incredible lightness of being. And she would, would be, spend her whole day in her room, and she wouldn't know if it was night or day. And, I, you know, I just found myself gravitating to her room, hanging out in her presence, just an inspiration in how she met each moment with just such a complete lightness of being. And then the abbess of this nunnery, um, she was a woman who worked very hard, uh, and she was training all these young nuns. And they all called her auntie. You know, she was a very endearing woman, uh, really a bright light in herself. And, you know, it was a great joy for me. We used to walk around the hills of Sagain together. And uh, I could, just watching her relate to the world. And wherever she went, people loved her, and she was she was so investigative. Um, she, when she would go into uh, one of these, uh, what are they called? <laughs> Pagodas. Uh, she would be poking around at everything, and me, you know, I was like, oh, you don't touch anything. But she was just right in the thick of things, looking, investigating. It was just her way of being. And so both of these women were really inspiring to me. And then, uh, some years ago now, maybe five years ago, um, I got news that they had both died. They died within two months of each other, which to me was you know, quite striking. Uh, but when I heard that, it brought, with this sense of lineage, a sense of responsibility. The seeing that we are the beings in this present day that keep alive the teachings and the practice. And that, you know, it's through this very practice that we are doing here that the light of the Dharma stays in the world. And, you know, I've, I've just seen that it's like they die. Every year, 
one of my teachers, somebody who's been really important to me, passes away. It just brings a sense of urgency, necessity to the work that I'm doing, that we're doing. It's up to us. Just in the very way we meet this moment. So these refuges in the external world, taking refuge in the historical Buddha, the teachings, the Sangha, the group of people that collects around this practice. On the inner world, it's taking refuge in the awakened mind, the potential of this awakened mind within each of us is taking refuge in the practice. It's taking refuge in learning to be our own spiritual friend. And these are only refuges to the degree that they manifest. We call them forth. We turn to them, understand them. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is a way of taking refuge in the nobility of our aspirations and this homing instinct, this inner inclination to awaken and staying committed to this, bringing it to the center of our lives bringing it to the very way in which we live our lives. They get revealed through practicing, become strengthened, nurtured, become reliable. There isn't so much scrambling to think, what do I do when it's difficult? There's the knowing what to turn to, what is reliable. And the path is the discovery of this for ourselves.
Actually, when we look within and we see this truth of impermanence, we see the fleeting nature of experience. We see how conditioned all of these experiences are. It becomes evident. Turning to the unconditioned, the unfabricated, the untainted purity of awareness. The sixth Zen patriarch once said, Let each of us take refuge in the three gems within our own mind. May it be joyously so. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings find true refuge. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.